0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm speaking today with James Zarsidiaz. Dr. Zarce Diaz is associate professor of history and the director of the Uchenko Philippine Studies Program at the University of San Francisco, and he is the author of Resisting Change in Suburbia, Asian Immigrants and Frontier Nostalgia in LA, which came out with the University of California Press just last year in 2022. Welcome to the New Books Network, James. Good to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation
0: why don't we start as we always do on this show by just hearing a little bit about who you are. Can you give us a little bit about your background and maybe tell us in particular how you became interested in history?
1: Yeah, you know, I kind of came into academia in an interesting way in that that wasn't my original plan. (laughs) Uh, I think maybe that's the case for some folks as well, but I initially intended on working on Capitol Hill um, where I was a staffer for a few years. And so I was living in washington d c was really interested in policy work, um, but you know after those few years, while it was you know tremendous experience um, and I learned a lot about the inner workings of, of government, especially our federal government at least the legislative side, um, you know I didn't find it as fulfilling as I thought, and one aspect you know academically and professionally that I'd always been interested in was just history of of the United States broadly and I thought, well, I wonder if I could make a career out of this. Uh, because it is a passion that I've had since, you know, I always joke about this. I, I just remember being in like fourth grade and still remember, you know, holding on the assembly stage in my elementary school, you know, best history student. And I think I got that for a few years, uh, when I was a kid and up in you know, really through high school and college I had that interest. So um while I was working on Capitol Hill, I was actually also a student and uh in college. And so I uh pivoted and decided to apply for graduate school uh, for a PhD in, in history. Um and you know the rest is history, so to speak, right? <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> um, so <laughs> um but but yeah, I I will say that the, the main one of the main reasons why I became a US historian, apart from just a personal interest since, you know, since childhood, uh is that I, I felt that there were so many gaps in you know a lot of the the readings and literature and the texts that a lot of us engage with when we're reading american history and among those were uh you know among those included you know stories and experiences about um uh, communities of color particularly asian americans especially asian immigrants and their families and you know what uh life is like across the United States for people who are of uh, of Asian heritage and background. And secondly, um, just out of my own personal curiosity and interest was also histories of suburbanization and suburban settlement and suburban architecture and and places that I found, you you know, that I find today still a huge part of American life. And while there was, you know, growing scholarship in suburban studies, I still felt like there was so much to tell about how this nation became a suburban nation. And so those are the two primary factors that that led me to a career um, in, in academia, but particularly focusing on these aspects of American history.
0: But also, I mean, you you up there on the stage in fourth grade with the best history <laughs> student sash on. I mean, come on, it was written in the stars. It was guaranteed to happen, right?
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. When you look back on it now, right? It's like <laughs> I guess it was destined, right? It was have uh-huh. how, it, it, how it was meant to be.
0: <laughs> So you, you mentioned a moment ago that you were really interested in um, in the history of of, of suburbia and, mm-hmm. and you know why we are such a suburban nation. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. I'm really curious what brought you to this specific topic mm-hmm. of this book. Why a book about mm-hmm. suburban Los Angeles in particular in the very
1: recent past? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know this book and this research is is both coming out of academic and personal interests. And, and so th- th- I saw this intersection and opportunity to write this book uh, because of that. And, and so I'll say that, you know full disclosure, and I mentioned this in the book, I was born and raised in this part of Los Angeles, which is known as the east side of the San Gabriel Valley. And you know, to our listeners, to our friends who are listening and colleagues who are listening, the San Gabriel Valley is one of the, the principal valleys of, of greater LA and it's uh, on the east side and the San Valley is is a huge part of greater LA but i focus on the eastern side and i i make that distinction because the west side of the San Valley there's a lot of literature about that region uh and a, a lot of folks in in recent months uh learn more about one of the the big suburbs of that part of the west San Valley known as Monterey Park and you know unfortunately you know it was it was brought to national t- attention because of the uh, shooting that occurred in that Chinese ballroom um, around Lunar New Year. But beyond that tragic incident, the histories and um, uh, background of Monterey Park and that part of the Sangaba Valley has been covered by many geographers, sociologists, political scientists, especially in the 1990s and 2000s. And in the eastern side of the Gabriel Valley, where there's also a large Asian and Asian American population, I felt that there was not a lot of information out there um both scholarly and uh beyond and so as someone that was born and raised there i felt you know i would love to know this history this contemporary history um but also i wanted to frame it you know this this book in a way that helped us understand larger processes that were occurring in america at this time beyond southern california and that in, that it includes immigrant suburbanization and so as I wrote this book you know for me it was it was both coming out of academic and personal interest because growing up there I thought also why are there so many Asian Americans here you know someone that's Asian American identify as Filipino Chinese American I was always curious you know why you know why this part of California why this part of America and what was it about these particular communities of Southern California that led thousands of Asian families to establish their lives here? And as someone that had, you know, you know, gone through schools in the region, um, ate at the restaurants in these communities that I talk about, I felt that there was a, a compelling story to tell. And from the perspective of long-time residents who saw this tremendous change, especially in the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and 2000s. And so hopefully readers, you know, got a sense of what was so appealing to these communities, these populations of the Gabriel Valley, you know, what brought them there, but also how this is again, a larger story about suburbanization in America at in this particular time of 20th century.
0: So let's start by, by setting the scene here a bit. Let's talk a little bit more about the East San Gabriel Valley. I'm going to ask kind of a, kind of a, 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 a big question disguised as a little question. I'm mm-hmm. wondering what this place kind of looks and feels like today. Can you maybe give mm-hmm. a brief background and a brief history of this part of California and maybe mm-hmm. describe what it's like to visit this place uh, here today in
1: 2023? Yes. Um, great questions. So... I can tack all of them, hopefully in a <laughs> in in a in a short way. So um, that is a that is a big question disguised as a small one, but that's a that's a good one. <laughs> um, the San Valley, you know, for many years was home to um, to indigenous populations, including the Tongva, um, also known as the Gabrielano peoples, um, and this was a largely agricultural rural part of Southern California. Um, you know much of the uh, land that was there was um, given through um, land grants, right? And so this part of l a like many parts of Southern California, has a long history of of ranch culture and agricultural production that became over time more national um, as these suburbs or what would become suburbs um, became more and more connected. Uh, to the coast-to-coast marketplace that would emerge thanks to major rail lines that would hit uh, this part of LA. You know, this was part of this region, the San Diego Valley and and the Pomona Valley, which is next door, part of the region, really, technically, um, were connected to major arteries of of railways that would ship citrus and other goods uh, to different parts of the American West and to the U.S. generally. And this area became more and more popular uh, with settlers, uh, particularly suburbanites after World War II. But it wasn't until really the 1960s and beyond when this side, the East Gabriel Valley became more and more populated. And there was more commercial and residential growth uh, during that time. And part of it is because it was somewhat inaccessible. You know, I, when I spoke to oral history, uh, spoke with oral history interviewees, many of them would say, you know, part of the appeal of of settling there in the 1960s or the 1970s before mass suburbanization really took off was, was its rural and country charms, as they would say, in that, you know, let's say you had a family that was living in a town uh, like Hacienda Heights or, or Diamond Bar, as I mentioned in the book, some of these communities that I focus on, they'd say, well, we loved, right? We loved that it took, you know, one or two roads that you had to drive, you know, off the highway that you know, that it was completely dark at night, that we loved, that it was kind of hard to get to because it felt as if it was really removed from greater LA. You know, some of these families, you know, they'd say, well, I, I work in downtown Los Angeles and, and they were not about the urban life, as they would say, and did not like the hubbub and, and busyness of the city. And for them, driving out, you know, 20 miles, 25 miles to this part of LA was a reprieve from what they saw as the disorder, chaos, and, and vice of the city. So really, it's not until the 1970s and certainly by the 1980s and 1990s when these communities truly become full-fledged suburbs. And when I say that, I mean mass-tracked housing, gated communities in some parts um, that had you know several uh, dozen or hundreds of homes within those gates, um, or large strip malls, right, which are emblematic and, and, you know, reflect the many suburban communities across the United States. And just to kind of put a a, a a close, a bookend on this kind of short timeline, you know, when we get to the 1980s, 1990s, these communities that were predominantly white, um, while you had, by the way, some other communities as well, like Latinx populations, Um, You know, living in and around these communities, you know, the, the largest community of color became Asian Americans by the late 1980s, but certainly by the 1990s and 2000s. And this is important because Asian immigrants and their families, largely Chinese from Hong Kong and Taiwan, Filipinos and Korean Americans, start to change the built environment, the architecture, the landscapes of these communities, and and those became um, contested grounds um, politically in many ways. But as you will read in the book for for listeners, if you've not had a chance to read it yet, um, there were also a lot of moments in which Asian immigrants agreed with their white neighbors about how the suburbs should look, how they should operate, how they should feel. uh, and, And that becomes a really interesting part of this story when we're talking about Asian American suburbanization and in particular, this part of LA. And before we get into
0: some of the details of the story that you just told, and by the way, I thought that was that was extremely well done uh, covering, <laughs> uh, you know, several hundred years of history in about three minutes. So
1: Thank you. It's, that, right. <laughs> it's a, that teaching experience, right? Exactly, that we, a lot of <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: Um, I don't typically ask about book covers on this show yeah. because, you know, it's an audio medium, right? Um, but, uh, but, but nonetheless, I found your book cover very striking. As I was reading the mm-hmm. book, I kept kind of flipping back to the front cover and just kind of like looking at it and, and imagining the story that you're telling, playing out mm-hmm. in the scene that the, that the book cover has. So I encourage if you're listening to this to, to break out your phone and do a quick Google image search or something for, for the title of this book. Because like I said, it's a, it's a very striking book cover. So can you describe you. the cover of this book? And is this what the San Gabriel Valley looks like today?
1: Well, first of all, I'm glad that you like the cover of the book. Right, They always say, don't judge a book by its cover, but I'm glad that the cover is appealing <laughs> as much as the content uh-huh. <laughs> in the book. Um, but yeah, you know, Steve, you're, you're looking at, you know, and, and readers are looking at Diamond Bar, which is one of the six suburbs I focus on. Uh, and just really quickly, I want to say, I focus on these six suburbs because to me as a researcher, but also as someone that grew up in the region, they developed in similar fashion. And so I chose these particular um uh communities as case studies for the book right uh, but again, going back to the cover, this is a photo of Diamond bar. I will say you know whoever you know <laughs> uh uh took this photograph uh this was from um uh, a public ar- archive of photographs um they did a really good job of really um capturing what you know kind of the slice of the community it, it is I will say it's particularly brilliant, the colors that pop off here, uh, off the page, but that is what many of these communities look like that I described in the book. You know, these are, um, you know, middle, upper middle class suburban communities, um, with one and two story homes that have a pseudo Mediterranean, um, you know, uh, particular look, right. With the, uh, uh Venetian vibes as some people said <laughs> with these tiled roofs and stucco homes and and palm trees and and just a lot of lush greenery um but as you'll notice like in the cover a lot of these communities are surrounded by by nature uh by hills, rolling hills, by uh you know different um uh areas of brush that again appeal to a lot of settlers in the region you know one of the themes I say in the book that I say over and over is country living or frontier nostalgia and i and I say those terms because that kept coming up in interview after interview archival you know um work that I would do. It would show up in newspaper articles and journal entries that people said I wanted to move to this part of l a because it reminded me of the countryside it reminded me of of living in the frontier and, and so really leaning into this kind of Ternarian sense of of the wild, wild west, of 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 this part of America that seems so exciting and and new, but at the same time nostalgic and very familiar at the same time, right? This kind of cowboys and 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 ruggedness, that kind of imagery and and descriptions of the American West. And that, you know. Worked out to be, you know, a very appealing aspect of, of selling homes, right? S- the selling these lifestyles in many ways for a lot of these buyers and these settlers, you know, really after World War II.
0: Right. And, you know, it, it almost reminded me of, this may be kind of a, a strange comparison, but I kept finding myself, you know, thinking about everything you described in the book about these you know suburbs in this place as trying to evoke this kind of frontier mythos and everything. I kept thinking about mm-hmm. Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show and how it's this mm-hmm. sort of safe way of experiencing something that is you know the the quote unquote real West and the suburbs are also this kind of safe way of experiencing mm-hmm. the, this sort of exact same frontier idea. So I just thought that the cover you know with this sort of like suburb plopped down amidst these like rolling green hills just really it was very mm-hmm. evocative of this idea that's so central to the book
1: itself, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, let's get
0: into the history in a little bit more detail. And let's go back to the earliest days of the suburbanization of this valley from like the, the the 1960s through to the 1970s or so. What did this process of suburbanization look like? Who was settling in this place and
1: why? Yeah. You know, a lot of the earliest settlers after World War II, that is, um, were families who had deep ties to the American South and the Midwest. And and that's really crucial here because it helps us understand, you know, notions of regionalism and certain worldviews and later on political views that would shape these communities well into the 20th century. And so those settlers who came in the 1960s and 70s um, and I make that distinction in the book, there were three waves of suburban settlement as I talk about. This first wave that came after World War II, especially in the 1960s and 70s, they sought out that rural frontier experience that I mentioned earlier of uh, having this kind of you know, removed from, uh, from urban life and, and trying to claim a slice of the American West that they found appealing uh, and, and that what brought them there to begin with. And so they were very much part of a generation that, uh, you know, they would live on these sprawling ranch homes. Sometimes they were self-built actually. So if they weren't part of a small um, tract of homes that were built by a, 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 oftentimes a, a regional developer, they would buy, buy a plot of land and build a home themselves. Many of them raised, um, you know, small plots of of, of uh, vegetables, fruit, raised uh you know, cattle and animals in some cases, and that's what they wanted, right? Many of these settlers, they wanted that rural feel. Many of them even owned horses and equestrians that, you know, lived in the community. They built a sense of community from, you know, owning horses and and really described this part of LA at this moment as idyllic and peaceful and just the antithesis of urban life. And so this is part of a generation that Resisted cities, right? Resisted urbanization. Then you have a second wave of settlers that came largely in the late '70s or so, uh, really through the 1980s. And this in-between generation, um, when I say in-between, I mean the, these three waves that I that I historicize and document. Um, they they also sought a Western frontier landscape, but they also wanted something that was a little bit more glamorous. Um, we have to remember, popular culture plays a huge role in and in what informed how it informed people's worldviews. This is a time when Western fashion was, you know, in vogue. So Wrangler jeans and and cowboy hats and boots and and Western life was, you know, glorified on television and in film, particularly TV shows that were popular for the time, like Dallas and Dynasty um that were really dominating, you know, primetime television. And so, this generation that came in the in the, you know, mid to late 70s through the 80s, many of them, you know, were really trying to chase that particular western lifestyle, one that was, you know, somewhat flashy but at the same time still, you know, true to its quote-unquote rugged western ways, right? And so they wanted a slice of that, but still a typical suburban community. They wanted a a manicured home in a manicured community. Uh, They wanted access to good schools. uh, And they too were were anti-urban in the sense that they did not want mass development, even though, right, um, (laughs) they're contributing to, to this mass suburban sprawl of greater L.A. And then finally, in terms of the three large waves of communities that settle after World War II, you have this wave of of settlers that comes around the mid to late 80s through the 1990s and 2000s and many of these settlers are asian immigrants why this is crucial again is because they too like their predecessors are are interested in a suburban lifestyle but one that had this you know uh devotion to an american west that they also saw as people who watched American media and listened to uh, you know American music that glorified the suburbs, but also romanticized Western life, you know we have to remember that American media, TV shows, movies, books, what have you—they were all also making its way to Asia. Uh, and Filipino immigrants, Chinese immigrants, Korean immigrants, and other Asian groups—they tell me when I interview them. Um, that they they saw this particular life uh, and imagine a particular lifestyle in America. And once they came here, right, when they moved in the 80s or the 90s, they wanted to experience that. In other words, they want to experience that single family home, right, on a, on a big plot of land surrounded by trees and greenery uh, with, you know, quote unquote, good schools for their children, uh, and that was, to them, part of the appeal of why the Senegal Valley, you know, w- lured them in. And when they start to come in and, and establish their their roots in these communities, that's where some of the, the pushback from previous settlers comes in and, you know, concern about, you know, will these Asian immigrants, quote unquote, assimilate into these suburbs? But will they also, the, the bigger question is, will they assimilate in America? um can they can can they be quote unquote good neighbors right and and their position and their place in the suburbs becomes highly racialized, and so they're often finding themselves Asian immigrants are often finding themselves you know on the defensive at the same time many of these Asian immigrants subscribe to a lot of the ideas of of, of you know American suburban life at this time and wanted to play by the rules of the book, which is to say. That you know you you don't display ethnicity out there in public ways, right? So uh, that includes things like minimizing speaking Tagalog or Korean in public, or um, you know if you're going to open up a Chinese business that you know in one of these communities like Walnut or Diamond Bar, that you don't necessarily um, build a shop that is quote unquote you know aesthetically Asian, right? Uh, or have Chinese lettering outside. For the store signage, or if you do, keep it to a to a minimum. And so there's these there's this a lot of compromises that are met um, because there are these you know prevailing notions of what life in the suburbs is supposed to look like and and how you're supposed to act and behave. And so that third wave of settlers, you know, came in at a time where these communities were 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 trying to figure out how will America be? How will these suburbs be? Um, and how will they, you know, what are they going to look like as we start to diversify in this multicultural America? And, and this is all in a particular milieu, right? In the sense that in the 80s, in the 90s, there's this push for multiculturalism and diversity, Um, and, quote, unquote, tolerance, which is, of course, somewhat different from inclusion uh, and that spirit. Uh, And and so there's this willingness to embrace racial and ethnic diversity, but there's also still some concern about what that will do, right, Um, and and the the doors that will open when you allow other groups that have historically been marginalized from the suburbs from settling there, you know, how are these communities going to operate and look, and will that disrupt the image and the ideal of the American suburb. So these three waves, you know, really reflect how Gabriel Valley looks and feels throughout the 20th century. And when these three generations interact, that's where a lot of the really pointed questions about what is suburbia, right, when and, and the, you know, related concerns, really comes to the fore.
0: And part of what changes during these these three waves as these these different waves of, of of settlers of residents come to the valley is that the the valley itself and the the built environment of this place also changes mm-hmm. as well. Um, and a big part of the story maybe you know the part of the story that I found the most fascinating was was this this kind of built environment and how it is changing over the course of these decades as well. So can you talk a little bit about this how were Planners and developers and architects and residents, how are they trying to evoke a kind of specific image of the American West? And how is this image changing over the course of this kind of 30, 40
1: year span of time that you're describing here? These communities grew largely out of how developers were marketing these suburbs. And so when I say the first generation of settlers, you know, they they moved there because they wanted a country lifestyle you know, and many of them claim that they lived that, you know, they, they meant that, right? They lived on farms or small plots of land with, you know, modest housing. It's the later generations of settlers that come in the in the 70s, the 80s and 90s that um, really did buy a slice of a lifestyle that local and national builders were selling. And so when I say that is, you know, when I was in the archives, looking at advertisements and photographs, you know, and pamphlets and brochures from people that I interviewed when they bought their homes. This is why, you know, historians would appreciate this. I loved that they kept a lot of these records, you know, um, when they bought these homes. Um, I'm like, and, and I love people who kept everything, you know, when they um, moved into their communities. Um, it, it told me a story of, of you know, that, that developers wanted to market the East Singapore Valley as something unique, in that you're not just moving to a suburb you're moving to a quote unquote country living community and because of that you know in advertisement after advertisement i kept seeing these recurring themes where you'd see a family walking through you know this this meadow or alongside a pond and they would often say in the text, you know, if you move to Walnut, if you move to Diamond Bar, or Chino Hills or these communities that I talk about, you know, you're you're not just buying into uh a community, you're 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 taking with you a slice, right? A piece of the old American West. And there was so much imagery and and countless examples of this in the archive that I found that that to be, you know, Really, a, a most compelling story, um, because you know while rural nostalgia is not necessarily specific to the East Anguba Valley, we see this you know with the, Sang- uh, with the San Fernando Valley. Laura Beroclo's work is a prime example of that. We see you know um, you know this this appreciation for the country in other parts of suburban America as well, but here in the East Sangaba Valley you know, that notion of you're buying a piece of the old American West, it sold homes. It really did sell homes. And so as these communities start to become more and more populated with families in these single family homes, in these mass track developments, you know, of course they become much more dense and much more crowded. (laughs) And that, you know, quest for rural living, country living, you know, is now, uh, you know, up for debate, right? Is this still now a country community? Can you still claim these communities to be rural or or um, pastoral in any way when there's traffic left and right, when strip malls are on top of each other, um, when you know it, uh, you know, you have communities that are upwards of. 40,000, 50,000 people, you know, is this rural, right? Is this still, you know, (laughs) the old American West? And for some, they wanted to still imagine these communities as such. But for most residents, I think they knew themselves that that image, that model of the old American West that they thought they bought in 1976 or 1984 when they moved in, you know, that was gone now. And I think for a lot of residents, particularly those who are more politically active and civically engaged, they wanted to, to prevent any more growth and wanted to protect that particular sense of what this Western landscape, you know, how it should look and feel and operate. They wanted to defend and, and keep it the way it was, if they can, <laughs> or at least not advance it any more ways in terms of having more development or having increased density. And so that's where really, you know, I think another fascinating aspect of this story is, is, is the ways in which people not only resisted change, but also how they worked to create a sense of, you know, protections around what the old West should look like in this quote unquote, more modern age. Can you talk a
0: bit about the relationship between white and Asian residents and settlers in the San Gabriel Valley? You you talked a bit earlier about how when um, Asian immigrants start to come to to this uh, part of the suburbs, that white residents push back against this, right? That there is this kind of undercurrent of racism and Mm -hmm. tension here. But as you explained in the book and you alluded to earlier, that also doesn't quite tell, doesn't quite explain the
1: whole story here. So can you talk about this a bit? Yeah, it's a it's a complicated dynamic. Um a lot of white residents who moved to these communities in the 60s, the 70s and well into the early 80s or so. You know, I, I wanted to paint a story here uh that you know that made it clear that it wasn't a, you know, a story of just white resistance to Asian people period, right? That it was so much more complicated than that. And when we're talking about these communities becoming more and more diverse in the 80s and 90s, there was an open openness and willingness to have Chinese or Korean or Filipino neighbors, but there also had to be some set of restrictions. There were a lot of unspoken rules that they had to follow. Um, and by they mean Asian immigrants and their families. And if they transgressed those boundaries and those rules, or social norms and conventions, that's where the resistance to having them as neighbors came. So, for example, um, you know, there are stories and and examples of, of let's say a Chinese family, you know, moving into you know a cul-de-sac of let's say Walnut or Diamond Bar, and you know, there is maybe curiosity at first from white neighbors, um, but there's also this, you know, kind of desire to imagine themselves as we can maybe be a, a a suburb that allows everyone to be here. And so if they see an Asian family move in, you know, they're quote unquote, good neighbors, as long as they don't put anything, quote unquote, aesthetically Asian on their front yard, right? Or if beyond their neighbors, just the community in general, if you know, they're considered good neighbors, if they don't, You know, let's say, put a big Buddhist temple in their community, which became a point of contention in Hacienda Heights, for example. Um, So there's this interesting back and forth occurring, of you know, acceptance but also resistance. One of the things that I found particularly fascinating is that Asian immigrants were, on the one hand, accepted and welcomed because they were seen as people who came in with um, more disposable incomes, they were seen as, you know, these quote, unquote, model minorities who were quote, unquote, whiz kids, you know, a lot of these obviously problematic racial stereotypes. And and as such, they improve the um, performance, the academic performance of public schools in the neighborhood, which then increases property values, they were seen as these good neighbors, because many of them were also um, right leaning politically. So they were, you know, against uh, higher taxes they were pro small business this was again remember in the 80s especially you know we're still really you know coming to the close of the cold war and many of these immigrants um had negative experiences with communism or or were skeptical of anything um in that realm and so they 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 aligned with the right politically here in the US but then they were considered not so good neighbors right um when you heard um you know, when people heard that there was going to be a, a a large Chinese supermarket opening in their community, and they felt that that was in some way self-segregating or anti assimilationist there were stories of uh, Asian immigrants who were criticized, um, you know, for, uh, you know, having uh, specific language schools that were, you know, let's say a Korean language school, because they're saying, well, why do you need to learn another language? You live in America, you should learn English. So, it's a. It was this constant back and forth that put Asian Americans in a in a very volatile space, right? This kind of liminal space, and that's why I say the story isn't just about whites versus Asians or or you know whites aligning with Asians only. There was a lot of this negotiation that made it a much more complicated experience if you are particularly an Asian immigrant at this time because you're on the one hand you want to appease your neighbors that are white that see the suburbs in a particular frame uh, you know an and image but at the same time you also want to abide by you know and, and live in the spirit of multiculturalism that you're also hearing so there's these mixed messages right you know you want to practice your ethnic heritage and traditions but at the same time when you do There are limits and controls over that. So that's what made this particular experience, you know, for some Asian immigrants, frustrating um, and then, you know, complicated their level of feeling comfortable in these communities. And Toward the end of the book, you uh,
0: explain some of the debates over a whole slew of changes that are occurring in uh, the late 20th century in really suburban America around the United States, Mm -hmm. not just the San Gabriel Valley, but in the San Gabriel Valley as well. Can you explain what's changing and how residents, uh, white residents, Asian immigrants, and, and Asian American immigrants as well, how they're trying to Protect, uh, protect, excuse me, this kind of uh, self-identity of this neighborhood, this this sort of country living Western frontier ideal in the face of these changes?
1: Yeah, much of the resistance to change, quote unquote, in the suburbs, and that's a big word I say throughout the book, um, you know, it, it, it shows itself in oftentimes local politics, right? So white residents and Asian immigrants, Asian immigrants and Asian Americans who live in these communities that make the bulk of these communities uh, that I focus on, particularly Walnut and Diamond Bar and uh, China Hills, for example, you know, they they fight things uh, like development. So if there is an example of uh, you know, let's say there's a plan for a you know apartment complex to be built, or another shopping center, or a shopping center with Less than you know desirable reputations for some people. So, for example, there was a, a rumor that a Target department store was going to open, right? And you know, I think you know uh, we, a lot of people look at Target you know fondly <laughs> as Target, but if we're thinking about the the 1990s before that rebranding, for a lot of consumers, um, that was you know Target was seen as as you know quote unquote low rent and not desirable. And so there were these middle upper middle class and affluent residents. White and Asian alike who said, "Nope, this doesn't belong in the suburbs. This is not part of frontier, you know, frontier country living." And so they would fight projects like that because they wanted to keep their communities um, a certain way and to keep a, a level of prestige and, uh, and uh, well, particularly property values high. And to them, any type of development in that realm was was going to put that at risk. Um, they, you saw other forms of resistance and, and image making and protections in things like cityhood uh, and incorporation. So, for example, you know, uh, Diamond Bar was an unincorporated part of Los Angeles County uh, for many years, and it incorporated in 1989 after many years of attempts um, to become their own independent city. You saw this also um, with Chino Hills and other communities in the area. Why this is important is because some of these cities incorporated and became independent municipalities away from the county because they felt that if they didn't become a city, if they did not incorporate, that quest to live a country lifestyle would be at more, it would be at greater risk. What they mean by that is to say is that local control allow them to quote unquote control their destiny because the county in the case of diamond bar, which was LA County in the case of Chino Hills, which was um, San Bernardino County, they felt that County government was, you know, not really paying attention to their communities and how they evolved. Um, They thought County supervisors just had too much on their plate to care about a municipality that was miles and miles away from their home base. And so they often blame County government, government and governance as reasons why Chino Hills or Diamond Bar were becoming more and more crowded with traffic increasing. If you have local control, if you have you know autonomy over your communities, uh, if you incorporate, then you could protect country living. So one of the chapters I say you know to become. Uh, to, to stay country, right? You have to become a city. And so that kind of play on words there that I find a little humorous, but that that's the rationale. And so these are just some examples of, of these alliances that were made between neighbors and residents across racial lines, but particularly between white and Asian residents, because they all collectively, you know, many of those who were most involved at the time in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, they all wanted to protect a particular image of the American West and the American suburb. And if they allowed for government, if they allowed for communities to, to you know, not, uh, you know, follow these rules uh, spoken and unspoken, um, that slice of the American dream, of the American West, of the American suburb, that's all going to go down the tube, right? And I think that for them, was really going to be a problem.
0: Well, as we start to, to wrap up here, um, what happens next? What's the the kind of you know, I, I hesitate to say conclusion of this story because it's an ongoing <laughs> story, right? But like, wh- right. what are what are some of the the, the, the tensions and the problems mm-hmm. and the the future in the San Gabriel Valley today? How are these tensions and problems and and you know, not to just frame it as a negative either? How does the yeah, story just continue? Friends. Yeah. yeah, trends. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. How how yeah. is that emerging from all of the topics that you are describing uh, here? These kind of historical uh, trends. How are they playing out today, and maybe even into the
1: future? That's a great question. You know, I I will say that one of the parts of the book um, that I you know wish first of all I wish time I wish I had time to explore, but also you know um, is still ongoing, as you mentioned. Is is the Intra-racial divisions that are taking place in some of these communities, and not again specific to the Gabriel Valley, but within Asian America. So, for example, in some of the interviews that I had with um residents, particularly Chinese residents uh, from across the diaspora, uh, you know, there were certain ideas about how Chinese from Hong Kong and Taiwan, you know, how they were seen, or at least some of them claimed to be quote unquote more refined. Um, than, let's say, the more recent um, uh, Chinese immigrants hailing from mainland China. So there's there were, you know, moments in interviews uh, where there was, you know, these brief remarks uh, or comments about how Asian immigrants or particularly Chinese immigrants from Hong Kong and Taiwan who settled in the 80s and 90s, you know, they were more, uh, quote-unquote, um, you know, following the rules of assimilation compared to mainland Chinese who came in, let's say, the 2000s or 2010s. And so that showed a rift within the community. But also that rift, we have to remember, is also political. Um, you know, a lot of Chinese from uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan, you know, are much more skeptical of people from mainland China because of of, of the communist government and, and other, you know, divides that have existed for generations right so that was one aspect that i would love to explore or maybe some other <laughs> historian would love to explore to unpack that more you know i didn't have enough space to do all of that but that is something that is still ongoing and i think i, I want to explore that as well in more detail uh with the Sangabo valley in particular i think what's interesting trends you know challenges or what have you Is that these communities are you know fully built out in many ways. Um, and so development still is an issue in that you know, with with housing so you know uh, inaccessible and not affordable to many people across California, but in this part of of LA as well, you know, um that's going to be an issue. You know, there's always going to be a desire to build more uh and to develop more, but then in this community, as is in many uh communities across America, there there's still a strong NIMBY culture, right? And so uh how do you address these challenges um when there's going to be resistance or are people firing back at plans that are meant to, or at least in principle, meant to help solve these housing issues and cost issues and whatnot. Um and, you know, interestingly enough, the the last thing I'll say is is I'm paying a, you know, a close I, or, you know, watching closely how politically these communities are going to change if they, if they haven't already. Right. And, and what I mean by that is to say is that for many years, as I discuss in the book, the East Gabriel Valley was a conservative stronghold. You know, you had some pretty prominent Republican figures from the state of California and even nationally coming out of the San Gabriel Valley. And over time um, with racial and class diversity and changes in the demographics, these communities become more and more left-leaning or maybe purple, right? Uh, If we're looking at the map, right, uh, of of electoral politics. And what's interesting is that you see more Asian Americans in particular um, voting uh, with Democrats or, or more liberal policies, yet at the same time, there's still a strong conservative presence in the community, including Asian Americans, which I talk about in the book. And so I'm quite curious to see how this will all play uh, out and how things will you know, evolve over time, uh, because nationally we're seeing a, a resurgence of conservatism from Asian Americans um, who are critical of affirmative action, who are more um uh, skeptical of quote-unquote CRT or critical race theory uh, in public schools in particular. Um, and so this is related to a, a project that I'm, I'm going to be working on that I, I hope to have more um, to say about in the future about the, the histories of Asian American conservatism. And I touch on this theme and this this motif in the book um, in different parts But I would like to expand um, this topic into something larger, so hopefully an article or book of some sort to to kind of historicize, um, you know, the Asian American right uh, in contemporary America, particularly since uh, the 1970s and beyond.
0: And as we, as we wrap up here, I'm always interested in um, sort of flipping the script a little bit and asking my guests to put themselves in the shoes of a, a reader of their book and kind of thinking back on the book from uh, a remove of a few years. What would you hope that that reader takes away or remembers from your book a few years down the line?
1: Ultimately, I hope that readers walk away from this book, whether they read it now or a few years later, or they reflect upon it a few years later, that would be my hope <laughs> um is that this was story you know this is a story not just about l a and the suburbs of l a or Asian immigrants in l a that this is actually a bigger story and narrative that reflects the suburbanization process in America that this is a story about the power of myth, really, the myth of the American dream, myths of the American suburbs and certainly myths of the American West and how a lot of people across generation, across racial and class lines, subscribe to these myths and these ideas and, and images and hold true to them, right? They, they, they find them to be not just compelling, but helps them make sense of what they want out of life in the United States and, and how they wish to live their lives as Americans. And so this book Resisting Change in Suburbia hopefully, you know, allows us to really think through the power of myth and how words, images and certain notions of life in America and what it means to be an American, you know, how those ideas and ideals circulate around the world, not just within America but around the world and how those ideas have played a huge and fundamental, you know, um you know, tremendous part uh, in how people live their lives and conduct their lives and engage civically and culturally and politically in the United States, especially in the late 20th and early 21st centuries.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's right there in the title, right? Like myths mm-hmm. are supposed to be mm-hmm. eternal. Myths aren't supposed to change, right? Myths mm-hmm. are supposed to be existing outside of time. So in mm-hmm. resisting change in suburbia, it's as much also, you know, the, the, the title is also saying it's about, you know, Keeping a hold on this exact same myth, which is so central to why people are moving to this place in the first place, um, that, if, if, if if that's the takeaway that you're hoping people come away from, that's absolutely the takeaway that I got from this book. You can't <laughs> Good. understand the suburbs without understanding this 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 idea of, of myth. So absolutely, um, yeah. Uh, you mentioned, I always like to, to have my last question be mm-hmm. uh, a preview of what my guests are working on next. You mm-hmm. mentioned a moment ago, a really fascinating sounding project about um, conservatism in Asian America. Is that, is that your next project? Is there anything else mm-hmm. that you're working on you'd like to give us a quick preview of?
1: Yeah that that's that project is um something that I'm I'm really in the early stages of of working on and that is related to my next project you know fingers crossed right um it always depends on what you find in the archive and, and when I do oral history interviews as someone that conducts oral histories um that is something that I hope to explore with with um more depth and and greater detail uh you know in the book as I as I uh mentioned a moment ago Uh, there are long histories of Asian American conservatism in America, I think within the field of U S history, but also in other fields that I engage with ethnic studies, for example, there's this notion that, you know, Asian Americans and and immigrants, you know, are, are liberal. And while that's true in certain um, communities and in certain moments of American history, there are also these factions of a strong and vocal Asian American right. And so, um, you know, in terms of the scholarship, while there is some great literature out there now that exists, there are still massive gaps in terms of helping us unpack and understand, you know, why are, you know, certain Asian immigrants, um, you know, clinging on to or believe in a certain set of right wing ideologies. And much of it has to do with, again, you know, various examples of, you know, uh, you know, for example, the instant, uh, the. Cold War ideologies informing this, or uh, perhaps, you know, class and other aspects, right, that's informing their politics. But I, I I want to explore this, you know, in the sense of, you know, what is that long history of Asian American conservatism in America, but how they have played a role in shaping, um, let's say, Republican Party politics or platforms, but also how the party also reached out to Asian immigrants and refugees, and I, I think of, for example, Vietnamese refugees uh, coming in uh, after the Vietnam War or um, you know, Filipino immigrants or Indian immigrants and Chinese immigrants across the diaspora that um, you know, are in certain sectors of business. Uh, And in trade that are, you know, obviously informing how they also, uh, how they vote, right, and and cast ballots. So this is something that I hope to explore in greater detail in the future. Um, There's some good work out there now. And there's some other scholars and who are working on this. Uh, But I want to approach this from the perspective of historian, uh, and, and try to understand this kind of longer history and narrative of Asian American conservatism and right wing politics and engagement.
0: Oh, that sounds like a fantastic project. Um, Thanks, you know, Steve. <laughs>
1: I, I can't yeah. wait to read
0: it. So, so hopefully, you find some good stuff in the archive.
1: Well, we'll send me some good luck and good energies, to, you know, from you and from all of our listeners, that uh, that I can uh, piece together some really, uh, you know, really cohesive narrative. Because I think there's a lot of uh, examples of this across the 20th and 21st century. Um, and I, I would love to see you know the, those connections and to and to see how they overlap over time and and the challenges over time as well. So,
0: Dr. James Zarcedias is an associate professor of history and director of the Uchenko Philippine Studies Program at the University of San Francisco, and his new book is "Resisting Change in Suburbia: Asian Immigrants and Frontier Nostalgia in LA," which came out with the University of California Press last year in 2022. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me and talk with me today, James. Thank you, Steve, and happy
1: reading, everyone. Have a good one.